to the 360th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I discuss photography in the COVID era with Virginia Hanyusik. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I want to amplify a call I put out on social media. I'm looking for the opportunity to speak with essential workers from all different parts of the workforce in healthcare, in sanitation, food service, uh, for a special series of COVID calls coming later this year. So if that's you or someone you know, Please get in touch with me and you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster or you can find me on email at scott.gabriel.knowles at gmail.com. Reach out to me, please. I'm looking to schedule those calls to talk to essential workers. Thank you. As of today, October 18th, 2021, there are 4,900,537 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, How a COVID-19 Death Impacted a Photojournalist's Family. This was published August 14th of this year by the Central Maine Morning Sentinel. It was written by Rich Abramson. Morning Sentinel photographer Rich Abramson recounts the loss of his brother-in-law to COVID-19 last year and how his family has coped with the loss. I'll stare at a blank piece of paper again today. I'll search for comforting words to jot down before slipping the note inside a sympathy card bound for Omaha, Nebraska and into the hands of my sister, Laura. Her husband, Chuck Bear, died with COVID-19 the day after Thanksgiving 2020. He was 60. Laura and Chuck were married 42 and a half years. They met at a church youth group as teenagers in Iowa in the 1970s. For 24 years, the home they shared in Omaha was a place where memories were made. It was the first place we ever bought, said Laura. Laura, her daughter Barb, and other family members spent the best moments of Chuck's final day next to him. Rules are strict for visitors to the COVID unit of Omaha's Methodist Hospital. Limited to pairs and bound by time, they took turns standing at his bedside. The ventilator came out as the goodbyes began. Days earlier, Chuck told his daughter, Barb, age 42, that he didn't think he was going to make it. The words were spoken through an oxygen mask that covered his face, muffling his speech. Laura couldn't see him for the first two weeks he was in the hospital. The first time she was close to him, he was hooked up to a ventilator. He was beginning the next phase of treatment. We just said we loved each other, Laura said. After he was sedated, he wasn't able to respond to those words. Grandkids Tyler and Hannah went into the room first, then grandson Austin with his dad Steve. In the final moments, the kids held Chuck's hand, 
told him they loved him, kissed him, and said goodbye. Laura and daughter Barb went last, but by then Chuck was already gone. I told him he was too young and was leaving us too early, Laura said. Battling the virus for two weeks, the ventilator was shut off. It was the only thing keeping him breathing, said Laura. The room grew quiet. Having lived for 60 years, it took only minutes for him to die. It wasn't the first time Chuck had to stare down a health crisis. He came back from a four-way heart bypass. He healed from a flesh-eating bacteria. His back was injured in a wreck on icy roads. Chuck always rebounded, got back behind the wheel, and returned to his job as a service manager for a garage offering tire and automotive services. He was there for about 30 years. Suffering through health problems and injuries didn't keep Chuck from enjoying prime time with his grandkids. He taught others what he knew about fixing cars. It made it easy for them to understand. In early May of this year, 2021, about 60 of us turned out for Chuck's funeral at a cemetery in Leon, Iowa, a small town about 15 miles north of Iowa's border with Missouri. He was buried next to his parents with a stone that also bears my sister's name. At her dad's graveside, Barb again had words of comfort and good humor that honored her dad in the wake of the family's personal storm. Her dad's bright green Challenger is now hers. It's first in a line of cars parked near her dad's grave. It's not my car. It'll always be my dad's car, she said. It's a stick shift, and she's still learning how to drive it. Though her dad isn't here to teach, I'm sure she'll learn. So many times over the past months and days, as I've struggled with hurt and hope, I've thought I should call dad. He will be able to help. It's incredibly hard living life without him. When she was a girl, Chuck assisted her with story problems. He helped her find a path to the answer by breaking down the problem. He would listen, absorb, and offer advice, said Barb. We gathered to celebrate Chuck's life on his 61st birthday. Then we shared all his favorite foods at his sister's home a few minutes away. Laura made all the food, including four different types of cookies and bars, ranch-style baked beans with hickory smoked flavor, Potato salad and sloppy joes served with soft white buns highlighted the picnic-style lunch. Brown sugar and barbecue sauce were mixed with the ground beef. That's how Chuck liked it. Laura's house was quiet this year. Holiday cheer was replaced with sadness, Christmas cards mixed with letters of sympathy, in the spring, she downsized, sold her home, and moved into an apartment. 1,400-square-foot place with two bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a large open kitchen. All her furniture fits, thanks to a sale that helped downsize things accumulated over a lifetime. There's a garage for her car. Someone else mows the lawn. Scale models of cars made by Chuck were shared among family members. They filled a curio cabinet with other mementos. This house is empty. That's why I'm going to have to move, Laura said. There's a lot of memories here. Sometimes I don't even go to bed, I just sit in my chair. On his side of the bed, I have clothes I folded, like there's something there. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, and she can correct me if I've got the pronunciation of her name wrong. Virginia Hanusik, is that correct? Hanusik, but you're Hanusik. 
I'm close, mm. Hanasek, okay. Virginia Hanasek mm. is an artist whose projects explore the relationship between landscape, culture, and the built environment. Her work has been exhibited internationally, featured in The New Yorker, National Geographic, British Journal of Photography, Domus, Places Journal, The Atlantic, MAS Context, and Oxford American, among others, and supported by the Pulitzer Center, Graham Foundation, and Mellon Foundation. She's on the board of directors of the Water Collaborative of Greater New Orleans, where she coordinates multidisciplinary projects on the climate crisis and is a 2020-2021 photography fellow with Exhibit Columbus. She lives in New Orleans. Virginia Hanasek, thank you for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here finally. I'd like to start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. I am calling in from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, the pandemic situation is things are pretty, looking pretty good here in the city, but obviously in the rest of the state of Louisiana um, has been hit pretty hard in recent months with the Delta surge um, because of, you know, the uh, percentage of, unfortunately, percentage is low of people that are vaccinated here, but um, things have been getting better in, in recent weeks. It, I don't know if, if this comes across in, in local media or how it's being presented in, in terms of trying to change people's mind about the vaccine there. Has that vaccination rate ticked up at all? Have public health officials kind of given up? Is there public communication on that front? Um, you know, there was a really uh, heavy push before Ida things, you know, in the past couple of months, it's pre and post Ida, that kind of world that we're living in right now. So uh, before the storm, the city of New Orleans is the, was the first city to um, put in the vaccine mandate for restaurants and indoor spaces, um, which, you know, anyone coming into New Orleans from like out of town would be an incentive for people to, to get vaccinated. Um, but there's been a big push throughout the state, obviously, with um, John Bell Edwards being governor and um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, parishes that, you know, still have really, really low vaccination rates, kind of pockets like Baton Rouge and, and New Orleans um, and Lafayette that, that have higher rates. But post-Ida, uh, you know, it's been, the state has kind of been in still pretty intense recovery and relief mode. So, uh, you know, there are still pushes for COVID-related vac vaccination work, but a lot of it is focus on, you know, hurricane recovery and um, disaster relief that way. A lot of compounding what, disasters. <laughs> absolutely. I, I wonder what the pandemic has been like for you personally. Would you mind sharing a personal memory or something that sticks in your mind of this period? Well, I will. All, so I um, was living in New York for 2019 and the very beginning of 2020 and was moving back to New Orleans. I was supposed to move back here March 18th, 2020. So I had already planned to leave my apartment. I was packing it up. And I remember the day that the NBA was suspended, um, which was the day that I was moving out of my apartment in Brooklyn. And uh, just the franticness of not knowing what was going to come. And I ended up staying at my parents' house for two months. Um, they live in upstate New York, so I spent May, March, and April um, with them before before making the drive down here, which I did in a single day. Uh, 
with with my brother. So I would never recommend anyone doing that, but that's certainly one of like the major things that I will always remember as part of this this moment where I did a 19 and a half hour drive in a day. So we didn't want to stay in the hotel. <laughs> yeah, I, that's so interesting that you mentioned that I had kind of forgotten and many people have done that sort of cannonball run at that time when they were just like, mm-hmm. we're not going to stay anywhere in between. But I did six yeah. and thought I was doing something. I never did 19 and a half. The adrenaline, I mean, I had done that drive so many times before that you kind of, I would get into robot mode, but I had never done it in a, in one shot, nor will I ever, hopefully, knock on wood, never have to do that again. But yeah, in the early days, it was just the idea of staying at a hotel was, you know, too scary. And um, so we just pushed through. But that's probably one of the main memories that sticks out at in the beginning time. Well, I've been eager to talk to you. You're active on social media and you're a, a working photographer who's generous with putting your work up and letting people have a look at it. And so I've been wanting to talk to you not only about um, the pandemic, but also what it's been like to be a photographer through this time and the main body of your work, which is around climate change. And then Hurricane Ida happened. And so there's another layer there to talk about. But let's talk about Ida for a second. Um, and just your own experience of that hurricane. I think it was you know, it's moving through at the time of the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And the mainstream media kind of forgot about it about 24 hours after it was over. But a lot of communities in southern Louisiana um, struggled for a while. But I haven't seen much reporting quite recently. So can you bring us up to date? What was Ida like living there? And, and what's it been like since then? So this was the first major hurricane that I have lived here for i'm i'm not from louisiana originally so i uh previous in previous years the hurricanes weren't as bad so this is the first category four storm that we ended up evacuating for and i was very fortunate to have a space to evacuate to in northern mississippi um thinking that i would be there for three days max and it ended up being 11. so uh i was very fortunate to one have a a place to go and be able to still work remotely and came back to um my house with with minimal damage um however most of south louisiana thinking about lower plaquemines parish terrebonne lafouche parishes those are all parishes that are you know directly on the coast um there are still many many people that are waiting on FEMA trailers, um, you know, in recent weeks reporting coming out of, of those areas where people are, you know, living in tents, living in their cars. Um, the situation is still is still very bad. And it, when you think about how the media cycle works is that, you know, you have these, these pockets of like very intense attention being paid to, to this area um, because of the disaster that happened but you know a lot of my work touches on just not to to um wrap up this question just to kind of bring that into the um, conversation is around talking about these landscapes that are are extremely vulnerable to sea level rise to climate change to to um the impacts of the climate crisis and their relationship to the fossil fuel industry so thinking about you know how much 
how what role the fossil fuel industry has played in uh, destroying these the natural ecosystem of South Louisiana, the coastline itself, which has made the impacts of storms so much worse. So um, if you look at a map like where Hurricane Ida made landfall, it's right next to the state's last inhabited barrier island, Grand Isle, which is still uninhabitable and will be for a very long time. Um, about, I think about 2,000 full-time residents live there. Um, but if you look at it on a map, you know, it's, it's, there's one road in, one road out. And, mm. and that's something that has been, um, I, I recently did a story with the Times Picking and the Pulitzer Center on Grand Isle this spring. Um, but, you know, it, in terms of a longer term recovery, there is a desperate need to be able to talk and to talk more about the, these issues and how they relate to, um, transitioning from the fossil fuel industry and having a more just climate future for Louisiana. Um, because, you know, these, these storms are only going to become more frequent and, and more severe. And it's not something that is obviously, it hasn't been sustainable, but it's particularly, um, it was a really, really bad year. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I um, just actually wrapped up a fundraiser that I was helping to organize with a number of photographers around the country to raise funds for a number of, of organizations that are doing more immediate um, relief work, but also uh, more policy and advocacy work around climate uh, equity and justice in, in the region. So um, we raised a good amount of money and hopefully that's able to make an impact with, with folks. Uh, thank you for, you know, giving us that, that view. And I, um, 11 days you were away. I wonder, you know, for on average, I mean, that seemed again, most people when they're evacuating, they think a pretty short period of time that's getting, that's getting quite long, but again, it's sort of this period also in which people, you know, this dislocations of the pandemic have been a, a real part of people's lives too. I know those areas you're describing are ones that I know earlier in the pandemic had real, had dangerously high levels of infection. And I know St. John the Baptist Parish, which I think was also hit hard, mm -hmm. had for a time the highest infection rate in the United States. So you use that term compounding disaster earlier. It's certainly, it's certainly that. I, you, you published a piece um, in Gizmodo, which, um, is a great, I'll put a link up to it, it has some photographs and um, some uh, touches on a bit of the themes you were just talking about. I want to just read a couple of lines from it. You said Hurricane Ida tested the levee system surrounding New Orleans and its suburbs, demonstrating that ambitious investments in infrastructure actually work. However, the system grows weaker with each square mile of coast lost to the Gulf of Mexico, pushing the water at the city's gates higher and higher. Meanwhile, communities like Homa, Cocodri and Chauvin, all places hit hard by Ida, have been essentially treated as buffer zones as land disappears around them. So that's this, those communities are ones you know well, I guess, from your photographic work, huh? Yeah, and, you know, I've been working in those communities for the better part of a decade at this point, and just seeing the landscape, you know, before my own eyes in the short period of time that I've been working there, how much it's changed. Um, which is nothing in comparison to people that have been living there for generations. So, um, you know, I think that 
a lot of attention and this kind of comes back to one of your original questions around or you know it may not be a question but a comment around you know not having as much media coverage right now or you haven't seen as much reporting coming out there's a lot of reporting with like the local outlets here um southerly um the times picayune you know those um the lens those those publications that have really been continuing on coverage and following the recovery process in detail. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of it, the the lack of maybe national attention has to do with New Orleans being spared this time. I'm being spared. I mean, myself, I was evacuated for 10 days because we didn't have power. Um, we didn't have garbage pickup for almost a month. You know, the city people were going to be... <laughs> I don't know if any, if you saw this, but the city of New Orleans put out like a tweet where after a month of people's trash just like piling up on the sidewalk, they offered for, for folks to, to bring it, to haul their own trash to the drop-off site, like in the, um, on the eastern side of the city. And it just was like an instant almost riot that happened because it was like, you expect me to put my trash that we paid taxes for to be picked up anyway mm. i say that just as like the city itself was relatively certain in comparison to many of the surrounding communities and i think that it was such a test for the the new orleans levy system um however thinking kind of in those uh uh you know binaries where it's like city urban and then coastal space and and all the priority and investment is potentially going into protecting you know the city the more metropolitan areas and what that means for recovery efforts in coastal communities because it's obviously slower i mean we got our power back in 10 days there are people last week that still didn't have their power um and you know terrebonne and, and lafouche parishes so i just think there's potentially like a dangerous thing that can happen when you think of those areas as buffer zones, um, which, you know, it's, it's called it's in a lot of like talking about the ecosystem and habitat of South Louisiana, like the coastal environments are buffer hurricane buffer zones. Like they, they mm -hmm. slow down the, the storm surge impacts of storms. Um, but I think it, it could be particularly dangerous calling those communities buffer zones because it, it implies that that they're protecting like a more important space when um, you know that's not necessarily the case. No, I'm glad you we're talking about this because it's um, in a couple of ways. One is that you know also around the the communities that live around the petrochemical plants, the communities that were there first when the petrochemical plants moved in. There's a term that's used there, which I think is a horrifying term is sacrifice zone mm -hmm. and and it's uh, it's a logic that uh, an insidious logic i think over time that people will just move out so the petrochemical plants doesn't have to be one big disaster but that people will be ultimately forced out of those places as the land surrounding the plants is sort of sacrificed to pollution so you have these buffer zones and you have these sacrifice zones and i think there's an interesting tieback and analogy to the pandemic here in the ways that particularly earlier in the pandemic, people talked about uh, the older population in the United States, for example, and it wasn't everyone, but there was there were vocal um, proponents of a sort of herd immunity strategy that said, well, there's some people just going to have to sacrifice in this pandemic. 
and the way essential workers have been talked about throughout the pandemic. Some people are just going to need to make sacrifices. It's not unique just to the United States, but when we start to get into this discourse that there's some places are just okay to let go, or some people are just okay to suffer and others are not, it's, um, I think it's a particular particularity of our time. And it's a way that to me sort of brings environmental work to closer to the, to the pandemic. I just wanted to, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but, um, you know, as you're talking about that buffer zone, I think it's a, it's a concept we should spend a lot more time thinking about who gets to survive and who gets to, to bear the brunt of these kind of disasters. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really interesting point. Also, I'll say, you know, there are a number of pieces that came out earlier in the pandemic that I know the guardian was kind of leading, but there may have been other publications that, that wrote about this, but, you know, the stretch of, of, uh, river between New Orleans and Baton Rouge considered to be cancer alley because of the high rate of, you know, cancer in this region due in part primarily to the concentration of petrochemical, um, of the refineries here. So, you know, you naturally, you have, not naturally, you have these, um, communities that have been exposed to air pollution damaging, you know, their health for decades. And then you have a, you know, an airborne illness that, you know, attacks the respiratory system. So it's, you know, you have those very, very high rates of, of, um, uh, of fatality because of that. So it's like thinking about how all of this is, it, it comes together in this really insidious way. Um, you know, I don't, this state has been exploited and extracted for, much of the past century and you know there's been a number of like projects that kind of bring to light and of course there are a number of organizations that are doing the really hard work of like the grassroots efforts to to hold the fossil fuel industries accountable like the louisiana bucket brigade gulf coast center for law and policy those types of organizations that are trying to do that just transition away from fossil fuels um but I think it's still really easy to look away and think about how your lifestyle isn't necessarily tied to the exploitation and, you know, the extraction of fossil fuels happening here and, and how that impacts those communities that are living right next to it. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with photographer Virginia Hanasek today. Virginia, let's um, maybe, we're going to look at some of your photographs here in a minute, talk about your work, but um, give us a little background. How did you get interested in photography? Uh, were you always interested in photographing uh, planetary scale disaster, or did that come to you later? Uh, talk about climate change here. How did you um, get interested in this in this line of work, in this type of art? Yeah, I, well, my background is actually in architecture. So, um, I went to school for like architecture history and theory. 
I'm not a practicing architect, but um, you know, I've always been interested in the built environment and and how it you know symbolizes so much more than just the physical materials that it's built with. Um, so I went to school for architecture. I went to um, Bard College and took a number of photography courses there, uh, and moved to New Orleans after school and was working for an organization that was involved in the a lot of coastal restoration work in the state so that's you know kind of how i became involved in uh this this climate work because i was seeing on a daily basis you know what was currently happening in in places outside of the new orleans levy protection system learning about you know the the history of land loss in the state what was currently happening with the the coastal master plan and ways to to restore that habitat um, and, you know, thinking about having an outsider perspective and being from the Northeast, uh, a lot of like the visual, the dominant visual imagery of, of South Louisiana or New Orleans outside of like, you know, uh, Bourbon Street and, and stuff that you would consider to be New Orleans, um, you know, thinking about like whenever a weather event would happen, you'd see all of the like flooding or Hurricane Katrina or, um, you know, those were kind of like the, the dominant visuals when talking about the environment of, of the space. And when I started working more in these coastal areas, it's not necessarily something, it's not lived on a, a daily basis in that way. You know, it's certainly something that is that is dire and is um, important part of people's lived experiences overall, but it's not uh, uh, as immediate on like a, a daily everyday basis if that makes sense so i came i became interested in figuring out ways to be able to communicate how there are these you know subtle um depictions and the landscape and the built environment that allude to these these bigger changes that are unfolding you know a little a little bit more slowly than than the the national media tends tends to portray so um it, it started that way and, you know, I've been working on projects for the past eight years or so here. Um, my current project that I just wrapped up um, for Exhibit Columbus that I was working on for most of the pandemic was about the history of controlling the Mississippi River um, mm -hmm. and the infrastructure that, that does that. Um, and, you know, tying it into South Louisiana, the end of the river. Um, and thinking about the, the various ways around the country that shape what flows through South Louisiana into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so just kind of trying to be able to, to tie in this place to a, the very vast watershed, which is the Mississippi River. So um, I'm slowly broadening my scope, but uh, there's a lot of work to still be done in the immediate surrounding areas. I mean, it seems to me, I'm not a photographer, it, it seems like such a challenge, you know, to think about climate change visually, to think about rendering it visually. Um, it's a term that's, that I use sometimes, a slow disaster. And so even, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of disaster photography, frankly, to me, I mean, it focuses on wreckage. It focuses mm -hmm. on things that easily convey images of sort of power and damaging humans. Um, but a lot of it is pretty drive-by. 
I think. Yeah. You know, we see places that we don't really have any context for them. It's a car upside down or it's a tree and a roof. Okay. I mean, we can kind of picture that, but the, it's not very deep at all. And it, and it doesn't connect us to the context and slow changes over time. Now I can say that verbally and I can show you documents and maps, but rendering that with a photograph to me seems um, almost an impossible assignment. So I guess maybe you could say a little bit more about you know, a term like risk or a term like hazard or a term like disaster, you know, how do you begin to build a concept for what you want to show that, that gets us thinking about those words differently? I think, you know, for me, my approach has always been trying to get more at the root causes of what disaster is unfolding, you know, there was, I think that we've gotten better as a culture in the past couple of years around trying to, you know, getting away from like the polar bear imagery to, to demonstrate climate change. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of that came from wanting to really shock people and having that, that um, imagery to scare people into, into acting. I don't think that people did that with bad intentions or, you know, like photo editors or whomever. I think it really was like a desperate, like, okay, well, we need to get people to, to click on this, to like pay attention to this. But I think right. most of the time what ends up happening is that you just get overwhelmed by the situation. You get really sad, you get infuriated, and then it, you know, don't necessarily know what to do next. Not that an image needs to be like a, step-by-step like here's your call to action but I do think that there's a lot of room for artists and you know I'm not I wouldn't I don't consider myself a photojournalist you know I don't really do a lot of um, uh, editorial work but when I do it's a project that you know ties into my um, my personal projects usually but I, I say that because I think that there's so much room to for artists to be creative in this space and thinking about different ways to communicate uh these these issues that are are not limited to hurricane ida or you know um the when when wildfires are happening you know it's something that is happening on a daily basis and for me i would have particularly be interest been interested here thinking about the role of you know big oil and how that shapes so much of the landscape here and the built environment and being able to build projects that really my hope is to be able to kind of tie these pieces together and provide some sort of interesting platform for people to become more engaged and, and interested in these issues um, because it's you know it's a learning process for myself as well and and thinking about the endlessly like interesting ways to photograph the architecture here and how it's something that you know these this area has been endlessly or has been adapting to the landscape for for decades you know thinking about houses on stilts and uh you know just for example like i'm working about to work on a project about flood insurance um in the next couple of months i'm going to be starting the research portion of that but, um, you know, thinking about like how architecture can symbolize stuff that is uh, kind of meant to be uh, 
opaque or is not intentionally meant to be like transparent. So you look, you drive um, down uh, Route 23 in Plaquemines Parish and you have houses that are raised 20 feet. You have houses that are raised 12 feet. You have slab on grade houses. You have like empty lots. So it's, you know, all in the span of like a mile. So you start thinking about like, well, what are the reasons for some, what would allow someone to raise their house that way? Or, you know, what choices do they have to make their, what's the financing like? And just thinking about right. the ways that like you can, you can jump into issues that are historically or you know, maybe not for everyone, but for me, I've never thought about that. I never thought that I would be like pursuing flood insurance or any insurance in a very aggressive way, like artistically, mm-hmm. but you know, you kind of are in this world for a while and start to to see the issues that are shaping the landscape um, that it's interesting to be able to figure out ways to, to communicate that. That was a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. No, it's, and I mean, even touching on these issues again, like, like you were just saying, like flood insurance um, and uh, there's some great new work out there about flood insurance. And, I, and I've written about flood insurance. It's not a huge community of people who've studied it. There should be many, many more. Um, but again, it's one of these things that it's like a, it's one of these infrastructures, and if we can use that term widely, mm-hmm. which exists, it's a financial infrastructure, which helps facilitate a slow moving disaster, which manifests itself in a place like Southern Louisiana. And it affects biosystems, it affects ecosystems, it affects um, non-human, you know, uh, biology, it affects uh, uh, plants and animals and politics. It's a full, it's a full system. Um, of disaster creation and maintenance. I, uh, let's, um, if it, you were kind enough to um, agree to show some photographs, which I w- would love uh, for us to be able to do now. I just want to remind everybody you're yeah. listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Virginia Hanasek today about photography and climate in the age of COVID. And I'm just going to bring this screen up here and uh, let you show a few photographs here, and then um, we can talk about these. So, situate us, situate this okay. work for us. Can you see it? Okay. Definitely. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to show some images from a couple of projects from the past um, two years or so. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's been two years. Um, so, you know, a lot of my work, as I previously stated, is looking at the infrastructure and architecture of this region and, you know, how it symbolizes so much of the human engineering that's been done to be able to live here. Um, So this is from a project that is about the greater New Orleans uh, infrastructure system. And um, this is a power line over Lake Pontchartrain. But I'm interested in kind of capturing this infrastructure I put this in the wrong order. Sorry, we'll go back to that one. Um, this is the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway. I'm interested in, you know, thinking about new ways to communicate this hard infrastructure. And obviously, if you spend any time in South Louisiana, thinking about the the light here, which is so unique and so incredibly beautiful, um, different ways to to see this hard infrastructure and the soft and juxtaposing with the softness of, you know, the light and um, the, the kind of ethereal aspects of, of the natural environment here. This is at the bottom, you'll see a levee in, in Kenner. Um, this is 
sorry, I put these in the wrong order. This is also uh, Lake Pontchartrain. Um, because I think, you know, also the, the, this is a, a Hurricane Katrina Memorial in uh, St. Bernard Parish on mm. the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, um, which was a man-made canal that, that closed several years ago, but was essentially, it was considered Hurricane Highway because so much of the water from Lake Bourne would get um, pushed up and, and go directly into the, the industrial canal in New Orleans. Um, but, you know, it's in, I'm trying to be able to, to capture these, these scenes in a way that, that adds softness to it, that, that adds some interesting elements rather than, you know, if you're looking at a levee, which is, you know, most of the time just concrete, it's, it's a little difficult to, to make that engaging in my personal opinion. So uh, I think that there are a lot of ways to explore different uh, ways of communicating this. this was that was that cross meant to be meant to be viewed from land, and that land has been inundated, or this is meant to be viewed um, from water? Uh, this is I'm standing on land. It's it's you can see it. It's not far off the coast. It was built like on the Mississippi River Gulf outlet itself. I see. Um, there's a plaque where I'm standing taking this image that, you know, uh, commemorates the, or the memorial for um, the lives that were lost in St. Bernard Parish. I see. This is in St. Bernard Parish as well. What do I have here? So um, these images are, are from the project that I, uh, let me just go back to the one that I, didn't mean to put second. But this is uh, an image from the project that I had previously mentioned that I had been working on with Exhibit Columbus with my photography fellowship, a project that looks at the history of river control uh, and the infrastructure that you know, controls the flow of water throughout the river's watershed. So this is in Port Eads, Louisiana, which is at the very, very end of the river, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, in the background and just you know this project was took place over the course of a year and i had some sites that i was particularly interested in looking at port eads being one of them um i took this image from the lighthouse that is still accessible obviously only by boat at this point um and looking at really important sites that uh you know and over the course of the past century since the 1927 flood have really shaped our our flood management policies and how the river was designed. Uh, Port Eads obviously named after James Buchanan Eads who was an integral engineer in, in that process. This is the same lighthouse, just the um, silhouette of it. But I also went up to uh, Cairo, Illinois. Um, to, to Memphis, to Greenville, Mississippi, sites that, you know, have some sort of historical importance when looking at uh, major floods that have happened. And essentially the project is is considering how there are no natural disasters anymore and that flooding is a, a product of decisions and uh, human engineering that ultimately impacts certain communities more than others. Um, this is actually really close to where Hurricane Ida made landfall in Lafourche Parish. Hmm. 
Let me ask you a couple of questions about about these. Um, wow, these are amazing. Mm-hmm. The, um, and again, there's sort of the variability in the methods of raising these and the questions that it raises about if they've been raised multiple times or if they were raised a height that's now no longer adequate because mm-hmm. of previous storms. Um, I, just tying this back a little bit to the to the pandemic, I mean, presumably are, these are homes where people still live. Uh, a lot of some of them are a lot of them are also camps like this one i i'm pretty sure is a camp i don't know exactly who who lives here they weren't around when i took this photograph um but there are people there are a lot of people that you know have lived in in these areas for generations that have either elevated their homes at at some point um you know, Ile de Jean Charles is a is a community that has received a lot of attention in the media over the past several years um, because they've been considered the first climate refugees. Um, they're actually reset. You know, there's a state there's a plan to to resettle that community to higher ground. Um, but a lot of those houses in in that community are are raised at this point. So um, yeah, they are living there full time. But this is you know. Some of these houseboats are are meant to are more recreational, mm-hmm. um, and this is in Cocodry, which also took a, a direct hit from Hurricane Ida. So I actually don't know if this is this is likely not standing anymore. So how have you had to uh, adapt your photographic practice for the pandemic at all? I mean, you come into these places; these are they look like very um, low density population areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know they're, you know, you don't just show up and start taking pictures. I mean, there's people around, people want to ask questions about what you're doing. How, how have you had to sort of adapt to the, to the pandemic? And I guess more generally, how do you interact with people when you're taking photographs of these, of these infrastructures and of these places, which often look quite desolate? Yeah. I mean, it's been a isolating year, <laughs> year two years. I mean, that's not unique to anyone, but, um, you know, my process is really, I do a lot of research before I go to take any images uh, and, and pretty intentional around spots that I'm going to photograph before I go. Um, Google Earth, Google Maps is my friend. So, you know, I, I, had, I did a lot of research for this project and just, you know, with previous relationships that I've had with folks in environmental organizations and live in, in these communities. And, uh, you know, the shoots that I had were masked and socially distanced. And unfortunately for trips, like the ones that I took up to Cairo, Illinois and followed you know, the river the whole way, uh, those were not social, let me get to know the folks in this town type trips. They were unfortunately me in my car, maybe talking to a couple of people along the way uh, that uh, would have been a lot more fun if I was able to actually go out and hang out with with folks. But uh, I was able to still talk with people outside and it's gotten better as more people have been vaccinated now and Fortunately, in Louisiana, I mean, this is our nice weather now. People are going crazy because the lows dropped into the 60s, I think. So I actually was cold this morning. 
And I know that I shouldn't say that I sound like such a wimp being from the Northeast and being cold in 60 degree weather, but I, we've, we've had, we're able to be outside for, for most of the year. So we're even in our winter, it's still, it's still pretty warm and we're able to, to hang out outside and, and have that space between people. No, oh, I know you said you don't tend to do photojournalistic works, but I, I know, you know, photographers see, um, photography, they see, you know, journalism and images differently than, uh, us civilians. Uh, maybe, you know, what kind of images have really grabbed you about the, the pandemic? And again, I'm sort of curious as a person who tries to pay attention to disaster imagery, but not in sort of conventional ways, what kinds of sense making do you think has been possible about the pandemic with photography? Have you seen anything that's, that's captured it? Yeah, I think my favorite, I mean, I, it's maybe not right to say favorite, but the work that has moved me the most is actually from the early parts of the pandemic in New York by this photographer named Philip Montgomery, who shot a lot for New York Magazine. And his style is just so incredibly beautiful. He uses mostly black and white, and he was in the hospitals in New York photographing uh staff and you know doctors and, and nurses and just in a way that truly felt like you were stepping into that space and not in a chaotic way but seeing so many details and such beautiful black and white imagery he has a very special way of using light that is just incredible and you know those i think that those pictures are going to be part of our national record uh so those those are images that i will always look back on and and just you know have put through recently just as a as a photographer i'm incredibly inspired by his work um and i think that also sarah lewis who is a uh our art historian out of Harvard, who's done a lot of work around photography, the history of photography and uh, its connection to the civil rights movement and, and uh, the social justice movement put out an op-ed, I think in the spring of 2020 or, or it may have been over the summer in the New York times around the need to have more everyday documentation of the, the COVID crisis itself. Um, not limited to just photographers that are going out for major newspapers, but really having a, a record of, of how people are seeing this play out in their daily lives um, as a means of kind of uh, removing the uh, barriers to entry of what's considered to be important photography and in, in the history of that. So I don't know. Those are like two two people that I look up to a lot in my work, and I'm always uh, interested in what they're creating. So I mean, that's that's kind of what, where my head has mm. been. I don't know Sarah Lewis. I'll check that out. I know Philip Montgomery's work, um, and hope to get him on COVID calls someday. Uh, I had mm. Maggie Jones on, who wrote an article you may have seen. It was in the New York Times Magazine, maybe in April of 2020, that terrible month, uh, and she was profiling a, a funeral parlor. Uh, and he did the photographs of the, um, mm -hmm. it was a family owned funeral parlor and he photographs of the, uh, 
the brothers who ran it, like handling, you know, they're showing their work. And it was just un, unbelievable. And it was access to a place that no one had. You know, it was a difficult place to get into. And of course, you treated it with great respect. But it, those are, I agree with you, those are, those are monuments to this time. But, but I, I mean, I guess we're almost out of time. And it's in a broader question. And um, I'm not sure it's answerable, but I'll ask you anyway. It, it just, I feel like we're in a moment. I'd study disasters. So I guess maybe this is just me and my own strange way of looking at the world. But I do feel like we're in a moment where we just need better ways to talk about, but also to see disaster. That it, you know, you were talking about the polar bear uh, and the climate, you know, sort of early days of climate photography, maybe. And, and to show things that jarred people and got their emotions stirred up. And that's fine. I guess that's all in the broader discussion. But um, we just need a lot of development around language and art and, and images and photography that help us grapple with, I think, planetary change. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, I was talking with anthropologist Frederick Keck yesterday, who studies zoonosis and, and people like bird watchers who, who are very much aware of the sort of relationships between animals and birds. And of course, that's that zoonotic you know, spillover. I mean, we're talking about big systems here, planetary scale systems with multiple species, and a lot is changing. It's just very hard to picture it and to see it. I don't, you haven't described your work in these sort of grandiose terms, I am, but I, I just wonder, I mean, if you see yourself as part of a movement of photographers that are trying to, to provide that for us, I mean, I, I, I guess my sense is that many of us are trying to scratch at things and describe things that we can only see a little part of, but we get a feeling that it's pressing and it's real and it's, it's vast. Mm -hmm. I have thought a lot this past year and a half about you know seeing something isn't necessarily just the act of seeing it is not necessarily the answer all the time you know it's not it's a lot I've felt and have experienced in my own work it's about the presentation of the work and what it's tied to and how it's disseminated and conveyed and um, I get so anxious this time of year because it's we're approaching the end of hurricane season, which is November 1st. And people are going to stop talk. People have already stopped talking about Ida. Um, I flew out of the New Orleans airport last week and there is still a ton of blue tarps over people's houses in Kenner. And that was seven weeks ago. Um, so I don't know if I consider myself part of a movement in to, to, change the narrative in that way. I think that I'm, I'm more of an advocate of incorporating these issues around disasters and the climate crisis in, in particular um, into, into interesting stories about people's lives and not isolating it as a one-time event. So being able to, to talk about it and, and provide context and, you know, it, a lot of my projects are multi-year projects that I have a hard time saying this is the end to. Um, so for me, it's just constantly talking about this stuff in, in various contexts. And for, you know, I've, I've, I've ended up doing that with the fossil fuel industry just because of my location and the, the premise of a lot of my work. Uh, that disaster. But I just, 
I encourage and, and am hopeful for more folks and artists of different disciplines to figure out ways to incorporate these issues into the stuff that they're already making and provide ways to engage people that are not already, I mean, everyone's thinking about it, but just to be more intensely engaged. Just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, just an announcement that COVID Calls tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, I will have epidemiologist and MacArthur Award winner Greg Gonsalves on to talk about uh, public health and COVID and Trump and Biden and everything else. So please do join me for that tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And I want to thank my guest today, photographer. Virginia Hanasek, for taking this time to explain your work and show some photographs. Thanks, Virginia, and good luck with the project that you're engaged in right now. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow on COVID Calls.